Heavenly Father, again, we've come to a passage that seems a bit cryptic to our ears, and yet we know each word was divinely inspired by your Holy Spirit and given to John to be written down, that we, your people, even 2,000 years later, might hear it and respond to it in faith. I ask, Father, that you would, this morning, bless us in two simple ways. I pray, Father, that we would hear the warning of not worshiping you. That we would hear the severity of it and the duration of it. And that you would, even as believers, rightly terrify us of the thought of eternal damnation. And with this warning before us, Father, I pray you would show us Christ and show us the cross that we might endure to the end, knowing that he has paid that price for us so that when we die, even as the Holy Spirit says in this passage, when we die, we will be blessed and blessed indeed. I ask for endurance. I ask for perseverance for my brothers and sisters in Christ here, for every true church here in the South Bay and throughout the world, that in the midst of these dark times, Father, as the dragon roams about the earth, as he uses beast one and beast two to persecute your people, that you would cause us to stand fast and to remain a course, Father, either until Christ comes or until you bring us home. We ask that you would do this, Father, that we might be saved. We, we want to be part of that 144,000 choir. We want to stand on Mount Zion with the Lamb and we want to sing that new song. And so give us that desire right now if we do not have it. And if we do, Father, I pray you would cultivate it and make it the greatest desire in our life. Cause us to hear right now, Father, that we might persevere and show others the light of Christ too. We ask these things in his most precious name. Amen. Revelation 14. Heed the warning is the title of the sermon. You probably saw it when I sent it out on Friday and you thought, oh great, here we go. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, it's not a title, so that's going to be a, an easy proclamation if you heard it being read or if you read the passage already. Um, we're in that time period right now where we're getting... Revelation from God that uh, is, is really not in many other parts of Scripture. And so some of it's going to be new, uh, maybe new to you, but really important for us to hear. Um, we want to hear warnings when the Scriptures bring them to us. And we're not, generally speaking, as a species, <clears throat> we're not very good at hearing warnings. Uh, in 2012, 11 years ago, if you remember Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Sandy was the largest recorded hurricane on record. And that hurricane hit the, hit the East Coast, and it killed 117 people. And the CDC afterwards, they, they did a study, and they tried to determine the cause of death for many of those who died. And, and most of the people died of drowning. And half of those who drowned, drowned in neighborhoods in their homes that had mandatory evacuation notices. In other words, they were warned that the hurricane was coming. They did not heed the warning. They stayed in their homes, and they lost their lives. And what they have found in their studies, researchers who study response to hurricanes or natural disasters, is that a lot of people just don't listen. And actually, they have a term from this. They call it the phenomena of confirming the threat, wanting to stay just as long as you can just to make sure the threat is real. I would rephrase that biblically, and I would say it is succumbing to our fallen nature. 
It is our sinful disposition to hear warnings and not heed the warnings. In fact, I would say it's something that mankind excels at, and we've always excelled at it. During the time of Noah, they received warnings that the flood was coming, and they did not listen. To the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, they received warning it was going to be destroyed, and they did not listen. Hearing warnings but not heeding warnings is something we do really well. Now, in light of the passage today, I don't think that's optional. I certainly don't think it's wise. In light of our passage today, I want us to hear, oh, I really do, brothers and sisters, I've been praying this week that we will hear, maybe like we've never heard before, the warning of God's judgment. As Christians, saved by grace, to hear what this warning is really saying. Now, if you've been with us this past few weeks, we were in between the seven trumpets and we're going to get to the seven bowls in two weeks. So if you've been eager for that, be patient. In between these two cycles of revelation about the, the redemptive plan of God, John's been given several visions. And each vision tells us something about life on earth, about this time period between Jesus' resurrection and his coming again in glory. And each vision reveals how difficult life is on earth, both for the saved and unsaved. We, we've learned that that Satan, the dragon, has been cast out of heaven and he's been thrown down to where? Thrown down to this place where we live. And that this dragon uses the first beast, demonically influenced governments, and he uses the second beast, those prophets and priests and false religions that hold up these governments, not only to enslave the masses, but to what? To persecute the church. And, and Satan's good at it. He's been practicing for 2,000 years. And so we should expect him to get better and better at his craft of enslavement and persecution. This morning, we're going to join John in a relatively small passage. You probably are asking, why so few verses? It's a, it's a holistic unit, and so I wanted to treat it like that um, from the pulpit as well. John hears three angels give three warnings. Three angels, three messages, three warnings. But really, it's just one warning. They're all saying the judgment of God is at hand it is here, it is deadly, and for Christians, you must endure. The judgment of God is at hand, it is here, it is deadly, and for us, those who are in Christ, we must persevere, we must endure all the way to the end, because if we don't, what happens? Well, we are subject to that judgment if we don't persist in Christ until the very end. And so as we work through verses 6 through 13, in Revelation 14, my prayer, my beloved, is, is for you and for us as a church. I want us to hear this as the family of God. And I want you to be rightly concerned for your brothers and sisters. And I want you to ask yourself, as you hear about these warnings, what are you doing? You say, what am I doing to help my brothers and sisters, what? Endure to the end. Because I want them with me. I mean, don't we want every single soul here in this room, in that choir of the 144,000? We want to be there together. So think about yourself and think about one another. Hear the warning and heed it, which is endure to the end. I want to look at two points this morning. Number one, the three angelic warnings. And number two, the one reasonable response. There are three warnings and there's only one response that makes any sense of any kind. The theme of the sermon is, is simple. It's heed the warnings and stay the course. Heed the warnings and stay the course. All right, are you with me? Okay. Point number one, three angelic warnings. So after John receives this vision, 
And it was, we probably should have done an entire sermon on that. I went back and I thought, you know what? Revelation 14, 1 through 5, it's worth an entire sermon. He gets the vision of, of the redeemed people of God, the 144,000. And they're on Mount Zion and with their lamb and they're singing the new song. And it's the song that only they can sing because they've experienced the blessing of the blood of Christ. And they're filled with joy. They're exuding joy. And so John, after he gets this vision, immediately in verse 6, he's taken to another vision. Um, and it's actually, in the Greek, it says, to the middle heavens, which is the sky right above the earth. Look at verse 6. John is now speaking. He says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead, middle earth, with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. So this eternal gospel, it's probably better translated an eternal message. Because we hear the word gospel, we think life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that's really not the message that we're going to get here in the next verse. It is the universal message that all mankind is commanded and called to worship God. That universal message that we were created in his image and called to worship him. Every nation, tribe, language, and people. So without exception. And this message is given in the context of judgment. Because John says, the, the angel tells him, judgment has come, and therefore, the wise thing to do is worship your creator. Look at verse 7. And he, this is the angel, the first angel speaking, and he said with a loud voice, fear God, that's have reverence for God, and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the earth and the sea and the springs of water. In other words, the creator, your creator, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of all that is seen and unseen, of all that is in them, including you, sends this first message through this first angel, this eternal message, to worship God alone. It's a simple message that we're to rightly fear him with reverence and awe, that we're to rightly glorify him in all that we do. It is a message that is given to those created in his image, that he is our creator and he is our sustainer and he is worthy of worship. Not the idols in your life, but the one true living God. And this, my beloved, is, is why you were made. Your very purpose, uh, your being, is to worship God, to glorify God, to honor God. That's why he made you in the beginning. That's why you're here now. And if you're in Christ, that's what you'll do forever. I still hear, my beloved, I still hear brothers and sisters saying to me, I don't know what my purpose is in life. And I said, well, look at the catechism. Look at the very first question of the Westminster Catechism. What is the purpose of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You got it. You got it. God expects us to worship him. And the judgment against those who do not is real, severe, and it is now. Remember, and Kirk preached on this a few weeks ago, Jesus Christ inaugurated the kingdom coming in. He started the judgment cycle when Christ came. And so judgment is here. In fact, Jesus, Jesus this is the very beginning of his ministry. In Mark chapter 1, after, he, after John um, the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee and he proclaimed the gospel of God. So the same gospel this first angel is talking about. And he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe this God. And so the first angel warns all people everywhere that the kingdom of God has come. Judgment is here. The second angel comes along and he has a warning 
He has a warning for Satan and his world system, Beast 1 and Beast 2. Every time I say Beast 1 and Beast 2, I, I, I think of Dr. Seuss. Um, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about here. Beast 1, you know, the, the demonically influenced governments, and Beast 2, those religious prophets and priests that align with them. So if you think Dr. Seuss, don't do that. Verse 8, although the language is similar, right? Verse 8, <clears throat> another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Babylon, we're going to hear a lot about Babylon in chapters 17, 18, and 19, so I'm going to touch on it here. But when you hear Babylon, your first thought should be the Babylonians who came as prophesied by Isaiah and Jeremiah. They came and they destroyed Judah. They, they took out the, the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. and they took God's people captive, Right? But that wasn't the end of their story. Isaiah and Jeremiah also prophesied that through the Persian king Cyrus the Great, the Persians would come in and do what? They would overthrow Babylon, and they did that in 536. They came and they overcame the Babylonians just as God had so decreed. In John's day, Babylon was metaphoric for Rome. And that makes sense. Throughout the centuries, Babylon has represented Every city, every nation, and every empire that's been used by Satan to enslave mankind and to persecute the church. So we have lots of of Babylons throughout the history of the church. But as powerful and as demonically influenced as these governments have been, this angel makes it clear that every single one will be destroyed. Not one will last. And in fact, my beloved, that destruction takes place in, in real time, in human history, right? It's not like at the very end of time, God raises up nations and he persecutes or he, he judges nations. He judges them in real time. At the height of the Roman Empire, you probably remember this from your Western Civ class, at the height of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome was called what? The eternal city, the city that would live forever, And the ancient Romans believed that no matter what happened in the rest of the world, kingdoms would rise, kingdoms would fall, but the Roman Empire, the eternal city, would always be. And yet, you know your history. That's not true, right? The Roman Empire was overthrown like every empire since and every empire that will be. Babylon after Babylon will rise and fall and be punished by God because we're told here These Babylons, these nations, lead people astray, calling them to spiritual, latter part of verse 8, sexual immorality. Now again, that's metaphoric for idolatry. And so these nations rise up, they call us to worship false gods, God comes in and he punishes these nations. The warning for us is, if we've affiliated ourselves with that first beast, if we have listened to the second beast and we bow down and worship, when he destroys those nations, you will be subject to that punishment too. So there's a warning here of the destruction of the Babylons throughout history and certainly of our own time. And there are many Babylons today. The last warning from the third angel is the most extensive, which I want to sit on for a little bit. Look at verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast, remember that's the demonically influenced government, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. So the third angel comes with this loud voice and he becomes very specific 
about who will experience the judgment of God. All those who have a mark on their, remember we talked last week about they're going to have a mark either on their right hand or their forehead. It'll be the name of the beast or it'll be the number of the beast, 666. All those who worship anything or anyone other than the one true living God will be subject to this judgment. Those who will not be have what? You have the mark of Jesus' name or God the Father's name written upon your forehead. And so everybody's marked and you have these two universal camps now and has been for human history and certainly since the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have those who are marked by God in Christ. I pray it's you. You said, I have Jesus' name. I have the Father's name on me. I will be part of that 144,000 choir. As I sang this morning, I was thinking about that day when I'll be on Mount Zion with Jesus. And you say, this destruction's not mine. And I praise God if that's true. But if you do not have the mark of Jesus, then you have the mark of the beast. You have that 666, which represents your allegiance, your heart, your worship. Not to God, but to Satan himself. And the warning here coming from this third angel is that the judgment of an almighty God is yours. It belongs to you. Now, if you've been in this church for some time, we talk about salvation and judgment. We talk about heaven and hell. We talk about righteousness and we talk about sin a lot. Why? Because the Bible does. So we don't want to avoid this topic. But I dare say, even in a church like ours, we become complacent when we consider the wrath of God. And maybe even as Christians, we do that. The longer we walk in Christ, we think, well, I'm in Christ, I'm saved. That doesn't belong to me. And praise God if that's true. But it doesn't mean that we should diminish the punishment that is upon those who do not know him and the warning we need to hear of deviating. John hears this third angel declaring, I believe if properly understood the most utterly terrifying warning that's ever been proclaimed, both in its severity and its duration. This is the warning of warnings because it is the judgment of judgments. I want you to look first at the severity of this punishment for those who worship the beast and do not worship Christ. Look at verse 10. He, those that are marked by the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his, God's anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And we just had a chance to sing about the cup, to drink the cup of God's wrath in the Old Testament was an expression of the magnitude of the punishment that God was going to exercise on those who were in rebellion against him. The cup becomes the destiny of those who refuse Christ. It is the violent punishment of God's what? His righteous anger. Now all of you have experienced anger and many of you have expressed that anger and sometimes it's been extreme. Imagine the anger of a thrice holy God. No comparison. And yet this is what those who reject Christ and remain unrepentant will drink. Psalm 75, it is God who executes judgment. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, listen to this, with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. They will drink every last drop 
of the wrath of God. His fierce anger against sin. The angel describes God's wrath being poured out in a language that says full strength. That means no mercy. That means no grace. For all those who what? Who refuse to hear the warning. To worship God. To fear God. To glorify God. To all those who say no. Listen, my beloved. No to salvation in Christ. God made a way through the cross. So for all those who say no to Jesus Christ, no to salvation by grace through faith, God says, very well, then you will drink the cup, the full cup, all the way to the bottom of the wrath that I have for you, for your rejection of salvation in me. Look at the latter part of verse 10. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. You, you heard that term, fire, sulfur, probably more um, germane to you would be fire and brimstone, right? Fire and brimstone. For those of you who are older, they talked about preachers that, that all they preach is fire and brimstone and not the gospel or the full gospel. Um, <clears throat> it's metaphoric language. It's intended to, to give you a, a sense of pain and suffering, right? To immediately have your mind go to hopefully the right place that the language is conveying. Um, it was fire and brimstone, fire and sulfur that rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah when God destroyed the city for its wickedness in Genesis 19. David said this when speaking of God's punishment in Psalm 11. Listen, Psalm 11 verse 6, let God rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, what they will drink for their sins. Now fire Fire, as we know, it's when it, if you've ever been burned, even a small burn, you say to yourself, wow, that hurts so bad. It, it stings, there's that, and there's a longevity to it. Even a little tiny burn, it'll last for a long time. And so we, we, we resonate. Most of us can get this concept of, of, of the pain that fire inflicts upon us. Some have said that those fire, people who have been burned severely say it's the worst pain that you can experience. Um, I haven't been burned that severely, but I do know how small burns hurt. So we get the concept of fire, that pain and that suffering and that burning sensation. Well, what about sulfur? You say, well, I don't even know what sulfur is. I didn't, I didn't really pay attention in my chemistry class. Um, sulfur is a, a highly combustible material. It's actually used in the production of, of matches and gunpowder, so you kind of get that smell. Whenever you light a match, you kind of get that smell of sulfur. Um, it burns a long time. And when it burns, it produces sulfur dioxide, a poisonous, suffocating gas that emits a putrid smell, a putrid smell. And so because the language is not literal, but figurative here, it's revealing the type of suffering, fire and sulfur, fire and brimstone, pain, stinging, poisonous, vile. This is what all who have the mark of the beast will experience. This is what the third angel is trying to warn mankind about. The cup of God's wrath is severe, listen, beyond description and beyond experience on earth. Nothing comes close. But there's another piece of this we see in verse 11 that makes the punishment infinitely worse, and that is the fact that it is eternal. It is severe and it is eternal. Look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment, the torment of those 
with the mark of the beast, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So all those who refuse God as creator, all those who will not bow down to Jesus Christ, will suffer the severe punishment of the fire and the sulfur, and it will go on forever and ever. The smoke of their torment, that's an image from the Old Testament of a city that's been burned in war, and and for a long time the city would burn. If you remember when Joshua set an ambush for the residents of the city of, of Ai, and remember he, he, had, he got them to come out and chase after him and he led his army out but, but he also took some of the men and he hid them behind the city and so when the city emptied out he had the men light the city ablaze and this is what we're told, Joshua 8.20 when the men of Ai had pursued Joshua they looked back and behold the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that they were doomed So the third angel tells us that this eternal smoke of the punishment for all those who do not follow Christ, who do not worship God, it goes on forever and ever. It says there's no rest. It goes on day and night. That means it's, listen, it's constant suffering and it's constant suffering that never, ever ends. And I do believe that that's what makes God's wrath so wrathful. That's what makes it so severe that I really want us to hear and get a hold of today if we do not already. My beloved, regardless of how much pain or anguish someone's in, either here or in the eternal realm, it is the knowledge that at some point in time that pain and suffering will stop that makes it tolerable. Is it not? It's you knowing No matter how bad it is in that moment that you know a week from now, a year from now, ten years from now, in the eternal realm, even a thousand years from now, the pain will stop. It's having that knowledge that enables us to endure, to get through suffering. But according to this angel, if we're reading this correctly, and I think we are, there is no getting through the wrath of God. There's no getting to the end of the wrath of God. Suffering, severe, eternal suffering, listen, becomes the permanent state of all those marked by the beast. Permanent state. So both the severity and the duration of the torment of those who drink the cup of God's wrath, it's beyond description and it's beyond experience. We cannot know it. The most horrific experiences man has ever faced in all of human history. The worst suffering we've ever read about in our history books. The most demonic torture, the most brutal forms of execution cannot compare. You cannot compare them. Truly apples and oranges cannot compare to the eternal wrath of a holy God upon all those who refuse to be saved. God's wrath is the pinnacle of suffering. Its duration is unmatched And it must be, my beloved. It must be. Brian Koberg, if you were following the news back in November, Brian Koberg, the PhD student from Washington State who, he murdered those four students um, at Idaho, University of Idaho, by stabbing them to death. Uh, He's in court right now and he has been charged with four counts of murder and a... um, 
a felony burglary charge. If found guilty, and it sounds like he's going to be, if found guilty, he could face four life sentences in prison or the death penalty, all for 30 minutes of mayhem, 30 minutes of violence, and he could face four life sentences or death itself. Now, if that's true, my beloved, those are the charges issued by a a court made of men to a man who sinned against other men. If that's true, that 30 minutes could, could bring about four life sentences, which, well, that's not even possible. He can't. He can only serve one life. But if he could, justice would say it should be four because he killed four people. My beloved, if, that's, if we get that sense of justice in our sinful, fallen judicial system, it should be easy for us to see how a lifetime of sins, not just 30 minutes, against an infinitely perfect, holy, good, loving God is not deserving of four life sentences or five life sentences or ten life sentences, but an eternal life sentence. Jonathan Edwards put it like this. He said, God is a being infinitely lovely because he has infinite excellence and beauty. Now listen, so that sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligation, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving of what? Infinite punishment. Infinite punishment. In other words, the punishment sinners deserve is as severe as we've described and eternal as we described because we have sinned against infinite purity and infinite beauty. It's the majesty and glory of God that merits the severity and duration of the punishment who will not worship him. There's another reason, though, that the punishment of the unrepentant is so severe and everlasting and something that we probably don't think about much but I hope to bring to your attention. Their guilt goes on forever. Their guilt goes on forever. We're told as believers, John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sins and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we claim that. But without confession and without forgiveness through the blood of the Lamb, through Jesus Christ and the cross, our sins, what? They remain on us forever. John Stott, the great 20th century Anglican author and theologian, he struggled, even to the day of his death, he struggled with the idea of eternal damnation, of this severe, never-ending judgment and punishment of God. But he did argue this. He argued that an eternal, conscious punishment would make more sense to him if, quote, listen, this is what he said, if the impenitence of the lost, their, their refusal to repent, also continues throughout eternity. He said, listen, if they, if, they, if they remain in rebellion, if they do not seek forgiveness for their sins, even in hell, then they deserve eternal judgment. In other words, if the sinner remains in rebellion against God, then punishment should remain as well. And that's exactly what we're gonna learn when we get to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16, all those who will not worship God are under his judgment. Listen to this. Here's a little foretaste for you. Revelation 16, 9. Scorched by the fierce heat, they cursed the name of God. 
They did not repent and give him glory. They gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. And because they did not repent, the severity and duration will go on forever and ever and ever. It is just. It is just. So John sees and he hears three separate angels all communicating the same warning. God's judgment has come. God's judgment is at hand. The cup of his wrath, his eternal judgment, will be exercised upon all who refuse the gospel. All those who say, I will not repent, I will not believe, I will not follow Christ, I will not fear God, I will not worship my creator. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will experience the severity and duration of the cup of God's anger. No exceptions. No do-overs. No second chances when we stand before the judgment seat of God. It is, my beloved, if in listening to this, it did not strike a deep compassion in your heart for the lost in your life, then you are not hearing what these angels have communicated. It is sad beyond description. It is heartbreaking to think about people we know and love. Even people that we don't know that well and maybe not love all that much experiencing this type of end, the severity and duration of God's eternal wrath. It is infinitely sad, but it is also infinitely just. And God, being a holy God, must punish sin like this. Now, when we get to this point in the passage and in the sermon, I stop and I say, well, John's writing to the church. Right? He's writing to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and then God was gracious enough to have us have this, so he was writing to the church at Christ Community Church as well. Why the warnings from these angels? Why this warning about eternal damnation and judgment that is severe and eternal in nature? Why this warning for us? We're in Christ. You say, that doesn't apply to me. It is a warning of the highest magnitude so that you what? So that you do not deviate from the narrow path of the gospel. It is the highest warning so that you do not look to the left or the right, but you take that narrow path all the way into heaven. It is a warning for us to persevere because some will not. Some will not, my beloved. Jesus said, those who persevere to the end, they shall be saved. It is a warning for us living in Babylon. It is the angels saying to John who says to us, no matter how bad things get, stay the course. No matter how dark things become in Babylon and our little mini Babylon here in the Bay Area, and it's a mini Babylon, wicked by, by other um, measure to other places, more so, how do we stay that course? Point number two, I pray you're still with me, the reasonable response. There's only one. If what the angels said, if what they said is true, and if the, the cup of God's wrath is this bad in its severity and duration, then there's only one response, and that is to do everything in your power not to drink that cup. Point number two, one reasonable response. So after hearing the warnings from the angels, 
I love this about John. He does it periodically throughout the book of Revelation. It's a full stop. He's heard the angel speak, and now he stops, and he said, I need to speak as a pastor. And he speaks pastorally now to those seven churches. He calls them the saints of God to those who had already been redeemed by the blood. And this is, he's speaking to you today. Listen, look at verse 12. John says, here is a call. These three warnings, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. These three angelic warnings, John says, they're sufficient to compel Christians to endure. They're sufficient to keep us on that narrow path to persevere in the midst of the trials and tribulations. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how much pressure you receive to forsake Christ, to disobey Christ, to not follow Jesus, John's saying these warnings are sufficient to keep you on that path because it's that bad if you don't. It's that severe and horrific and terrifying if you don't. He's saying you stop fearing God and giving him glory like that first angel commanded and your end is this, e- this eternal suffering, fire and sulfur and smoke that goes up forever. You stop living as a citizen of the kingdom of God you've been saved into by the blood of Christ. Stop living as a citizen of the kingdom of God and return to the citizenry of Babylon and your end is torment forever. John is saying to, to you, exchange your mark. Exchange your mark. Take off Christ, take off the Father, and take on the beast. Exchange your mark, and fire and sulfur is all that you will know forever and ever. It is that extreme, my beloved, and it's supposed to be. And I know even now, we listen to it, we're sitting here, you know, it's nice and warm, 68 degrees here, we had some breakfast and coffee, and it's very comfortable here, but the picture is extreme, and, it's, and John is intending for it to be elevated to that point God's people in every age, and I would certainly argue today, are to be sober-minded, right? We are to, we're to count the cost. We're, we're to count the cost. The cost of following Jesus means what? If you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus, I'm gonna profess Christ, I'm gonna declare the gospel, I'm gonna live a holy life in accordance with God's word, you're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna suffer broken relationships. You might lose your job, you might lose some friends, you might not get that A in that class where that professor told you, unless you believe that evolution is fact, you will not pass my class, True story. Persecution will be yours, but your end is eternal rest with God. We're to count the cost of following Jesus, and what John's saying here is you're to count the cost of not following Jesus. What is the converse of not following Christ? It is this severe, beyond measure, eternal punishment. And he's saying here, in light of that, the only reasonable The only wise decision is to keep following Christ. It's to stay on that path to heaven. Look at the latter part of verse 12. It's to keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. It's just keep trusting in the gospel. Trust in the work of Christ. Keep learning God's word and and obeying it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep walking the road of the Christian This is what John is calling us to do. He's a good pastor. And he knows, John knows that we can say we're following Christ and not follow Christ, right? We can get baptized. We can join a church. We can be here on Sunday morning. And then the rest of the week, we can live in absolute disobedience to his word. John knows that. He's a pastor. He knows that struggle himself. 
He knows it's easy to profess Jesus and not be obedient to Jesus. In fact, in his time when Emperor Domitian was persecuting Christians who would not come in and they would not bow down to the beast, the Roman Empire, and they would not bow down to him. He thought he was a god. They would not sacrifice an imperial cult. Um, he knew that, that Christians would suffer if they did not do that. Uh, and and some, some capitulated. Some sacrificed. And they worshipped the beast. And, and John's saying here, if you're truly saved by grace then the authenticity of your faith will be proven when persecution comes. When you're being called to bow down to that first beast, when your ears are being tickled by all the lies of the false prophets and the false priests, your authenticity will be your obedience to God. It'll be saying no to those idols. Being obedient to to God's commands. I mean, how did God start off the entire Decalogue? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God hates idolatry. And John tells us that a saving faith in Jesus that proves itself through obedience is the path of endurance. Let me say that again. A saving faith in Jesus that proves itself through obedience is the path of endurance. It's a narrow path. And Jesus said, few find it. It's a difficult path, my beloved. But I would argue, in light of what these angels said, if we believe even half of what they said, it is the only reasonable path. There is no other path to take unless you're out of your mind. Because the other path leads to eternal damnation. It is the only path to stay on, my beloved, because the end of destruction is not the end of your life in Christ. So even if it means the loss of your physical life here on earth, where you become a Christian martyr, that would be the most extreme test, would it not? If someone was going to take your life for your faith and they said recant or you die. John says, even then, you are blessed. Look at verse 13. I heard a voice from heaven saying, So John just ushered his pastoral counsel in verse 12, and then he hears a voice in verse 13, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed are. Now as soon as you hear blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, you're immediately thrown back to Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five, are you not? I mean, you think to yourself, blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, and so on. And yet here in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, this voice from heaven gives us probably the most difficult beatitude that anybody, any Christian could hear. And he said, blessed, look again, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. You know what that means. Blessed, happy are those, favored are those who die in Christ for the sake of Christ. Blessed are the Christian martyrs when their suffering and persecution leads to their actual murder. Blessed. Uh, I thought blessed are the poor in spirit is hard, or blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are the meek, but this one, it, it tops the list, does it not? Blessed are you if you're killed for Christ. You know, I don't really see that blessing, Lord. 
he explains it. He's saying you want to endure in the faith, even in this world where the dragon and the beast are operating to persecute you even to the point of death. We're being reminded by this voice from heaven that our leaving this place, listen, our leaving this place in Christ is the most blessed thing for you. It's the best thing for you. If you've been truly saved by grace through faith, it's good for us in Christ to die. Really, really good. You say, but my family and friends are going to be so sad. Yes, I didn't say it was good for those who remain. We mourn those that we lose. But for you in Christ... Look at the latter part of verse 13. The Holy Spirit chimes in here. This is great. The first part of the verse, it's a voice from heaven. And the Holy Spirit says, I gotta speak up. This is God. Blessed indeed. The the same phrase. Amen, amen. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they, those who die in Christ, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Amen, declares the Holy Spirit of God. Die physically in Christ, great gain for you. Leave this place, leave your mortal body, put it in the grave, and it's great for you because you get to rest from your labors. What labors? Your labor in Christ. You get to stop fighting the fight. You get to rest, and all those deeds follow you in. So we know that in Genesis chapter one, on the seventh day, we know that God did what? He rested, he created for six days, and on the seventh day, he he rested, and he established the Sabbath rest, that eternal rest that he enjoys and that he promises to all those who are in Christ. And that is what you receive, my beloved, if you stay the course of faith. If you continue to what? If you continue to labor for Jesus. The only way you can cease and rest from your labors is the assumption that you are laboring, right? So you're staying the course of faith. You are working in Christ And all who continue to serve and minister, all who continue to proclaim the gospel to the world, all who suffer for the sake of being a Christian, the angel says, will find rest in God. Their deeds and faith of obedience will follow them in and they'll be warrant for it. And you know what that means for us, my beloved? That means no more fighting the temptation of the flesh. What a thought that is, huh? No more temptation, no more battling sin. There'll be no sin nature in you in the presence of God. It means no more laboring. Laboring against the beast, beast one and beast two. No more working so hard to go, is that a lie or is that true? Is that false prophecy? Is that a false priest? Is that a false teaching? Don't you get exhausted sometimes just trying to figure it out? None of that anymore. No more suffering for the sake of being a Christian Broken marriages, strained relationships, discrimination at work, at school, amongst your neighbors, your neighbors who do not want to be friendly with you because you've made your position in Christ quite clear. No more, my beloved, no more feeling like an outsider because you live in Babylon, right? You you don't feel at home because you're not. You're a son or daughter of light and this is darkness, So no more feeling like you're always on the outside, like you're in a perpetual state of being a pilgrim in a foreign land. No more, you will rest in Christ. The Spirit says, blessed, blessed, blessed beyond measure are those who remain faithful to the end. The stark contrast, is it not, between those singing on Mount Zion, the new song of the Lamb, 
and those who suffer the severity and duration of the cup of God's wrath. Whatever rest, my beloved, those marked by the beast enjoy here on earth, and they do, they, they, they get to go with the flow, right? They get to participate in the world system. They get to make a name for themselves. They get to pursue popularity and power and prestige. But whatever rest they have here, these angels are saying, and, and John is communicating to us, they will only have a permanent, eternal unrest forever and ever. The unrest of what? Fire and sulfur, of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so once again, two paths and two ends. Rest now by living in the world and you will have unrest forever. Labor now for Christ. Suffer now for Christ. And this voice from heaven and the Spirit of God himself says you will rest forever. You will have the eternal reward of resting with God. The author of Hebrews said this in Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. If you know Christ, you have a rest already. Do you not? Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. So you have rest in Christ, but you don't have the consummation of rest because there's still that battle of your flesh in you. You're in that Roman 7 mindset. But Hebrews says there's still, there remains a Sabbath rest, a perfect, perfect, permanent rest for the people of God. And then the author said this, let us therefore what? Strive to enter that rest. Labor to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, either being tempted to fall away to beast one or beast two. Are you striving? Are you fighting? You say, I don't know why I have to fight. I've been saved by grace through faith. Are you striving in your faith? Are you fighting in your saved state? If not, my beloved, then you're not hearing the warning. Can I, can I give you two means of grace and then I'll close? Can I do that? Are you still with me or not? Have I lost you? Are you done? <laughs> he said, dude, the warnings are too big. I'm still, I'm still thinking about fire and sulfur here. <clears throat> I'm gonna give you two means of grace that, from the passage that I think will help us endure. Because I wanna help you endure. I want you to help me endure. I wanna make it. I do, I wanna make it to the end. I'm 57. I don't know how many more years I got, but I want to be in that choir. And I want you to be there too. So let me give you two and I'll close. Two means of grace, two ways that we can practice enduring and persevering, even here in Babylon. One, believe the warnings, and two, believe that Jesus drank your cup. Believe the warnings, and believe that Jesus drank your cup. First, believe the warnings, my beloved, that apart from Jesus Christ, it's fire and sulfur and smoke forever. But really believe that, that this, this description of damnation is so bad that with every fiber of your being, you do not want it. Believe it, and, and I would even argue, in the right sense, be terrified by it. You remember what Jesus said to the crowd in Luke chapter 12? He said, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear him, speaking of God, who after he has killed the body has the authority to cast you into hell. He says, yes, I tell you, fear him, fear God. In order for us to do this, 
for this warning to, to really impact us, then we have to, the warning has to be believable to us, it has to be pertinent to us, and it has to be serious. Those are, there are you know, three basic qualities of every warning that have to exist if we're gonna be serious about them. It has to be believable in that we have to believe the threat is real, that God is not joking when he says he's going to judge those who are marked by the beast like this. Now that's hard. In our cultural moment, we are in a, in a cultural moment where there are warnings about everything everywhere. Sticker happy warnings. On just about every product that you can think of, you get warnings telling you that to believe this is an authentic threat. And yet at times, there are so many, it becomes impossible to believe it. Children's Superman costume, I love this. They say, warning, this costume does not enable flight or super strength. Do we need that warning? One of my favorites here, your dog's prescription medication that says, warning, use care when driving a car or operating heavy machinery to your dog. Well, that's not believable. So it's not a warning that we're going to listen to. But there are warnings that we see that have an impact. There's a, there's a machine at the gym that I exercise on, a, a leg press machine, and you stack these weights on, and then you climb underneath it, and you release these little things, and you do your leg press, and you, hopefully you get these things back. And all over this machine, it's like, warning, death, warning, dismemberment, warning, be crushed. That's a machine you get under, and you look at that warning, like, maybe I shouldn't do this exercise. The warning has to be believable, in order for us to heed it. But it also has to be pertinent. It has to pertain to you. I, I'm still on the email at Southern Seminary, which is in Louisville, Kentucky, and so I still get emails about a variety of different things. Several months ago, I got an email about a tornado warning. It said, shelter in place. And I thought, hmm, do I need to shelter in place? I didn't climb under my desk. You know, I'm 2,000 miles away, right? So the warning had no pertinence to my life. It was not applicable to me. Right? So the warning has to be believable, it has to be pertinent, and the last thing, it has to be serious. If, if the risk is so little, it may be believable and it may be pertinent, but if it's not that serious of a warning, you may not heed it. Especially here in the, in the state of California, we have these Prop 65 warnings, which place labels on everything. And so in the state of California, there's a list of over a, a thousand chemicals that potentially lead to cancer. And that list has grown. I think when the, when the act went in place, it was like 600 and then 800. And now it's over a thousand. The label warning is this. You've probably seen it. Warning, this product contains a chemical known to the state of California to cause cancer. It just causes cancer in California and not any other state. This list, to get the list, listen to this. The chemical requires only a one in 100,000 percent, one in 100,000 chance of upping your risk of cancer to make the list. And so it's on everything. I mean, it's, on, it's in parking lots. It's on cups of coffee. You go to the dentist's office, you see the warning, you think, what, what's he using that I should be concerned about? Um, it's, it's everywhere, and therefore we what? We don't take it seriously because it's not a serious warning in many cases. Well, what about... What about our angels' warnings? How do they stack up? Are they believable? Are they pertinent? And are they serious? Well, they're certainly believable, my beloved. These are, these are messengers sent from God. Right? This is, this is from God's word. The scriptures warn us. 
Old Testament and New Testament, again and again, that God's wrath is against those who refuse to believe. Even Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, what did he say? John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son, what? Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It is believable, my beloved, and it is pertinent as image bearers of God God rightly expects all earth dwellers, everybody, every nation, tribe, language, and people to fear him and glorify him. He has that expectation. It's a right expectation. We were made in his image to do that. So it pertains to us. And those who refuse to worship him or pretend to by professing Christ but not following Christ, it means the wrath remains on us too. It is believable. It is pertinent. And I don't even have to ask you, is the warning serious? It's the most serious warning that's ever been given. It's the most serious warning ever revealed by God to man in all of human history. Fire, sulfur, the eternal nature of it, it is in a category all of its own. So if we believe it, because it's believable, and it pertains to us because we're image bearers, and it's serious to the point where we have no scale to measure it, then the response for us should be what, my beloved? It should be fighting hard to stay the faith. Fighting hard to grow our faith. Fighting hard in the power of the Spirit to be obedient to God and the Word of God. Your response should be one of holiness, of doing, as the author of Hebrews said, striving, striving in the power of the Spirit to stay in Christ. Do you believe it? Is it pertinent and is it serious to you? The answer is yes, a thousand times over because the consequence of not staying in Christ is suffering that punishment. But there's, there's another means of grace that I, I'm gonna offer you here and that is believing that Jesus actually drank the cup in your place. That horrible cup of God's wrath. Look at the latter part of verse nine again. The third angel said, if anyone worships the beast, and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, verse 10, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So before Christ, you had the mark of the beast. Before Jesus Christ, that cup was your cup, the cup of God's wrath. No mercy, no grace, pure justice. And the only reason, my beloved, that your end has changed from experiencing the wrath of God to the choir of the 144,000 on Mount Zion is because your Savior, Jesus Christ, who never worshipped the beast, he never received the mark, he never bowed down, he drank the undiluted cup on the cross for you. He drank your cup for you. So horrific did our Lord know this cup to be. That as you know, on the night that he was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples praying. And you know what he asked the Father. You know what he asked. He said, Father, if there's any other way to save mankind, any way for this cup, oh, let me read it to you, Matthew 26, 39. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, that's the cup of God's wrath, that's the cup of his anger, if there's any other way, this cup pass from me And then he said those beautiful words showing his love for you, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it was God's will 
for his son to drink the cup in full, to take the fire, to take the sulfur, to take the eternal damnation that we rightly deserved for our sins against God and experience what? The eternal unrest. Jesus experienced that on the cross so that sinners like us could be brought in and experience the eternal rest of God, the Sabbath rest of God, the blessings, as the Spirit said, indeed, of heaven. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, he labored in our place. He drank our cup. He died our death so that even when we die, when we leave this place in the body, we will not rot in the grave and you will not experience the damnation of hell, but you will, if you're in Christ, you'll be raised with him and you'll be seated upon the throne with him and you will enjoy rest with him. And he did all that, my beloved, to have you, to have you be with him, to bring you into the eternal rest of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the saints forever and ever. My beloved, I would argue that from these few verses, you have compelling reason to endure hardship as a Christian in this current Babylon. You have eternal reasons to keep the faith and obey the commands of God Because the consequences of not enduring, of turning away from God and living as a citizen of Babylon, they're not only terrifying beyond words, as I think we've established here, but they are, for you, most heartbreaking. They're heartbreaking for this reason. To not endure in Christ is to miss the universe's greatest love and power to compel you to live in Christ. And that is the love of God. The pure expression of Jesus' love for you on the cross. His drinking the cup that you deserved to have you so that he could have you is a love, as Isaac Watts put it so well, so amazing, so divine. Say it with me. It demands your soul, your life, your all. That love. Heed the warnings, my beloved, and stay the course. It is the only reasonable response to such a cataclysmic warning and to such an incredible offer of love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, use this passage to make the warning clear. Show us How dark that cup that we were supposed to drink, that Christ drank for us, truly is. I pray, Lord, in light of the warnings that we receive today, that we would endure well. No matter how difficult it gets here in Babylon, that we would persevere, knowing that the alternative is truly horrific. Cause us, Father, to rejoice in the work of Christ, that he would take that cup and subject his body to the cross to have sinners like us to bring us into the choir of the 144,000 that we might stand with him on Mount Zion and sing that new song of redemption. Father, I pray that the warnings would be believable to us and I I pray that the love of Christ would compel us this day and every day either until you call us home or until you come to keep us on that narrow path. Do it, Father, for our well-being, do it for your glory. I pray you would bless this entire church like that, Father, 
and that we would collectively help one another to that end. In Christ's name, amen.